Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. If you've ever been a part of a wedding party, you may have heard someone tell the bride that she needs something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue for her wedding day. And this popular tradition driving many wedding parties to make an effort to add these things to their bridal ensemble, I don't know if you know this, it stems from an old rhyme going all the way back to 1894, the late Victorian period. It was actually originally listed as a Puritan marriage custom, and the original rhyme goes like this. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And does anyone know the last line? The last line is, and a sixpence in her shoe. Now, in case you're wondering, something old symbolizes continuity, something new symbolizes hope, something borrowed symbolizes friendship, something blue symbolizes faithfulness or fidelity, and that sixpence in her shoe, sixpence was a silver coin, symbolized prosperity. And this rhyme comes to mind as we open up to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to read about another encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders. Once again, they have a few questions for Jesus, and Jesus is going to answer their questions by way of an analogy and a few pictures. Today, through the analogy of a wedding and a few clever images, Jesus is going to speak to us about something old and something new. Now, when we talk about old and new, some people say, out with the old and in with the new, whereas others believe the old ways, what's tried and true, The old ways are always the best. But contrary to what we might have heard, Jesus isn't going to pick a side in this argument. No, if we listen carefully, just like that rhyme, Jesus is going to make the case for both. Appreciating the old while also embracing the new. Of recognizing the purpose of the continuity of the past is to prepare us for the hope, the new of the future. With that in mind, hopefully you have it open. If not, it's on the screen. Let's hear from the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, starting, that's not the scripture, starting in verse 33. So don't look at the screen, just listen to me. (laughs) They, the religious leaders, said to him, John disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, This passage is actually the continuation of an encounter that Pastor Drew explored two weeks ago when, you might remember, Jesus called Levi, who we know as Matthew, 
Levi to come and follow him as one of his disciples. You might remember when that happened, that Levi, Matthew, was so impacted by meeting Jesus, apparently so excited by his invitation to leave behind his days working for the Roman government, that he threw a huge dinner party for Jesus, to which he invited all of his former co-workers, his fellow tax collectors. And you might recall the religious leadership did not take kindly to Jesus breaking bread with those kind of people, you know, flagrant sinners. And they were unable to remain silent on this point. And the religious leadership, in being unable to remain silent on this point, lodged a formal complaint directing it not to Jesus, but to his disciples. But if you remember this story, Jesus refused to be triangulated and he answered them directly. And this is the the key line from that encounter when Jesus says, do you remember? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And initially, this appears to be one of those drop the mic moments for Jesus, you know? having challenged the religious leaders in their self-assurance to recognize and confess their own need for healing and forgiveness, it appears as though they have been appropriately humbled and silenced. But as you just heard, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law do not walk away quietly in a spirit of introspection and repentance. No, they double down in their criticism, turning now directly to Jesus and lobbing yet another disapproving question. Notice they pivot away from grousing about the company Jesus keeps, and now the religious leaders grumble about how Jesus practices his faith. Their indictment comes by way of comparison. Now to understand what they say, as with everything in Judaism, there were set forms and guidelines that had been established detailing how a rabbi should train his disciples. One of the most common practices a student, for a student of the faith of Israel One of the clearest expressions of one's reliance upon Yahweh, the one true and living God, was the spiritual practice of fasting. And for those of us who may not be familiar with fasting, fasting is a spiritual practice wherein one abstains from something, usually food. So one abstains from something in order to fuel one's spiritual thirst and hunger for God. And one of the insights that can be gleaned from the practice of fasting is our ability to therefore identify from the various stuff we consume on a regular basis, any appetites, any habits that we have that rival, that eclipse, that therefore have become idols we worship instead of hungering, instead of living for, instead of honoring the Lord. And it normally is food, but we can fast from things like alcohol, from drugs, shopping, social media content. We can fast from gossip. We can fast from negativity. We can fast from criticism. It's all different ways to fast. Now, the Lord, the Lord had only called the people of Israel to fast just one day a year on what was known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. But despite this, despite the fact the Lord had required the people to fast only one day of the year, the religious leadership of by Jesus' day had decided, had established the tradition of fasting not once a year, but twice a week. Twice a week. Mondays and Thursdays. In fact, everyone knew when the Pharisees and their disciples were fasting because whenever they did so, they marked their heads with ashes as a visible sign of their piety for all to see. But Jesus and his disciples are not following this tradition. A tradition, did you catch this, which the religious leaders point out, even John the Baptist and his disciples regularly observe. 
In fact, it's interesting, in the parallel version of this episode in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us it's actually one of the disciples of John the Baptist who asks Jesus this question. Why don't you guys fast? Now, to be clear, as we read through the four gospels, we do find evidence that both Jesus himself fasted and that he taught his disciples to do the same. So what that means is this really isn't a question as much as it is yet another accusation being veiled in the form of a question, another accusation being made against Jesus and his disciples. And the accusation is Jesus and his disciples, through their liberal public posture of doing more eating and drinking than abstaining and fasting, Jesus and his disciples are setting a bad example, a poor witness before others. They're not taking their devotion to the Lord seriously. And in response, you heard it, Jesus answers their question, their accusation, by reframing their understanding of who he is. Reframing their understanding of what he's doing through the analogy of a wedding celebration. Jesus compares himself with the bridegroom and his disciples with the guests of the bridegroom. In fact, an even closer, better translation of what Jesus says here is his disciples are the assistants of the bridegroom. Or in today's language, they are the groomsmen those who follow or assist the bridegroom in pulling off the wedding. Not coincidentally, several of the Old Testament prophets utilize the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship between God and humanity, wherein the people of God were depicted as the bride and God as the bridegroom. Jesus, in associating himself with the bridegroom, is separating himself and those who follow him from the religious establishment, from those who have been keeping the faith. And he separates himself even from those like John the Baptist who have been preparing the way. In other words, Jesus makes clear his mission and ministry aren't about maintaining the status quo. His mission and ministry aren't about simply observing the traditions and practices of the past. No. The mission and ministry of Jesus and his disciples is about the inauguration of the long-awaited event, the long-promised marriage between God and humanity, which all those traditions and practices were preparing for. Jesus, by the way, once again here, presents himself as both the Messiah and God, as the bridegroom, the one who initiates the wedding, the one who brings the celebration, the one who comes to redeem his beautiful yet broken, but still beloved bride. Jesus, you heard, acknowledges there will be a time for fasting, and that time will come in the space between when Jesus offers his life unto death for all creation, and then that moment of his victorious resurrection from the grave. But right now, through miraculous signs and wonders, as well as revolutionary acts of compassion and grace, Jesus and his bridal party are unveiling the beginning of the wedding. The countdown to the eternal and unbreakable marriage between the Creator and we who had formerly divorced ourselves from the Lord. And so Jesus says, therefore, now is the time for feasting, not for fasting. Now is no longer the time to be looking to the horizon for the Messiah to come, for the Messiah is here. Now is no longer the time for waiting for God's promised covenant of salvation to be fulfilled, for the dawn of the kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the time for basking in the renewal of fellowship, the redemption of brokenness, the revelation of hope. When the bridegroom arrives and the celebration of the wedding begins, nobody is fasting. 
it would be counterintuitive to do so. It would represent not a sign of joy and thanksgiving, but a sign of one's resistance and opposition to the pending marriage. Jesus' response here to the religious leaders is as much of an invitation as it is a rebuke. We see this as he expands his answer to their question by way of three pictures. In these three pictures, Jesus is inviting those who are still hesitant, those who are still waiting and marking time on the sidelines, those who are still holding back. Jesus invites them to enter into the newness of what he is doing, of what he is offering. And we're going to look at these three illustrations in succession, and then we'll step back and try to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. And that that this is what Jesus intended for us to do, to look at all these images together rather than apart from each other. It's really hinted at by Jesus' repetition of the same phrase with each illustration. No one. No one tears. No one pours. No one after drinking. So let's look at them. The first illustration is the most accessible for us today as Jesus describes something that we can all relate to. An old, worn piece of clothing that needs to be mended. For this sort of repair job, we'd patch the torn garment by sewing on a piece of scrap cloth. Think of a pair of jeans that has a gaping hole in them. However, if you were listening carefully, that's not the repair method Jesus outlines here. No, Jesus instead imagined something more absurd, patching the old garment by tearing off and using a piece of fabric from a new article of clothing. And of course, no one would do this Because as Jesus observes, the new piece won't match the old garment. And perhaps even more importantly, trying to fix the old garment by cutting up a perfectly new garment makes the new garment unwearable, leaving it with a gaping hole just like the old piece of clothing. The second illustration Jesus offers involves the storing of alcohol. And it needs a bit more context as what Jesus describes here isn't how one starts amassing a wine collection these days. Because back then, as you know, wine wasn't stored in bottles. It was kept in wineskins. And these wineskins were made from sheep and goat hides. The hides of the the deceased animal were worked off the body without cutting into the skins so that the only openings were the orifices where the feet and the head had been. All these openings, save where the head had been, were sewn shut and then the skins were cured. Now, these wineskins... These new wineskins possessed a certain elasticity so that when the newly pressed wine was poured into them and the opening at the neck, at the head, was tied up airtight, the skin could and would expand as over time gases were released and the wine fermented. However, more often than not, these wineskins were single use only because after the wine was poured out, the wineskin would not shrink back to normal. It would remain fully stretched out to its limit. So if somebody came along and attempted to pour new wine into one of these old wineskins that had lost its suppleness, as the new wine fermented, the old wineskin would eventually stretch past its limit, crack, and it might even burst. And as Jesus notes, if that happened, both the new wine and the old wineskin would be ruined. New wine, Jesus says, has to be poured into new wineskins. The third picture Jesus paints is more of a continuation of the second one as he remains on the image of wine. Now, while with the first two illustrations, Jesus makes the case for what is new. Did you catch this? Jesus concludes his response to the religious leaders with the acknowledgement that new wine takes some getting used to. 
old wine generally tastes better than new wine because it's had time to age. Because our palates are more familiar with, they're more adjusted to its flavor. In other words, people tend to prefer what they know, even if it's incomplete, even if it's past its vintage, rather than drink, rather than receive what is completely new to them. So what's the point? What's the point of these three illustrations? What is Jesus trying to tell us? Let's start with what Jesus is not saying. Let's start with what Jesus is not saying. Contrary to how this passage is sometimes interpreted, Jesus is not declaring the old ways of Judaism, what is primarily known as the Torah or the law. Jesus is not declaring that the Torah or the law should be abandoned for the sake of some new way of following and worshiping the law. Because beyond this encounter, Jesus himself will insist he came to affirm and fulfill the Torah or the law, not to abolish or destroy it. Likewise, and more broadly, Jesus also is not asserting the philosophy of out with the old and in with the new. The notion that custom and tradition should be forgotten or dismissed whenever something new or innovative comes along. I mean, if we look carefully, if we listen carefully at what Jesus teaches and does, while he presents the good news, the gospel, as something new, he also portrays it as being in continuity with, being anticipated through what came before. So, long story short, Jesus isn't pitting the old against the new here. Jesus is trying to wake up the religious leadership to the possibility God doing something new doesn't mean God is changing the rules. God, in doing something new, actually is revealing where all those rules were intended to lead us. How they were preparing us for what God ultimately intended, eternally promised for us all. To be clear, rules and laws are good, necessary things. Rules and laws provide order and coherence, structure and boundaries. Specifically, God's rules for life, again, the Torah or the law, reorient us in a broken and chaotic creation. They reorient us as to what is true, as to what is good, as to what is holy. The problem, the problem is when the rules become what we worship. The problem is when the rules become what we fixate on. The problem is when the law is what we're devoted to. This is a problem because this isn't the point of the law. This isn't the point of the rules. God didn't give us rules for life, the Ten Commandments. God didn't give us the Ten Commandments so that he could be entertained by humanity having to jump through a bunch of do's and don'ts. In taking just one of those rules for life, one of the Ten Commandments as an example, Jesus teaches us elsewhere, humanity was not made for the Sabbath. Humanity was not made to take a day of rest for God's sake. The Sabbath was made for humanity to get a break. The Sabbath was made, we were called to rest for our own well-being. The Lord gives us these rules and laws for life as tools 
intended to guide and instruct, to lead us out of our brokenness, our division, our separation, and into healthy, safe, thriving relationships of mutuality. The goal is not keeping the rules, following the law for its own sake, though. A better relationship, the best relationship we can possibly have with God, with ourselves, with each other, that's the goal. The rules are for the sake of enhancing the relationship. Jesus is trying to help the religious leaders understand all the rules, all the traditions that came before were never meant as an end unto themselves. They were given, again, as a means of preparation. They were provided to keep us moving forward rather than to always be looking back. They were instituted not so that we would take care of ourselves, but so that we could recognize once and for all how great and how absolute our need is for God. It's not the rules we need because the rules can't save us. It's not the law we need because the more we understand the law of God, the more we understand the way things are supposed to be, the more we realize our inability to follow the rules. The more we realize that we are part of the problem. We might even say that we are the problem. It's not the rules we need. It's the relationship. It's the relationship. This is big because, again, the Christian faith has a bad rap in a lot of circles. And part of that is because there's a lack of understanding that Christianity is not so much about following rules as it is following the relationship. The relationship that we can have with God, again, with ourselves, again, with each other. The relationship we can have through being in and following Christ. Too many of us, too many of us have been raised. Too many of us are settling for a patchwork gospel. A patchwork gospel. Instead of having our clothes changed, we keep trying to rip off pieces of the gospel in order to patch up the holes in our lives. We incessantly labor and toil under the assumption, the conviction, if we could only patch up this one rip in the garment of our character, then our life would be better. Different. I'm not naming names, but truth be told, that's why many of us are here. Because we've grown up trying to apply the Sunday weekly church attendance patch as the way to cover up the gaping hole in our lives. And being here is important. Being here matters. But if you think that's patching up the hole that's in every, every human life, you're kidding yourself. Don't work. Others of us attempt to patch up the holes in our lives by doing good things for Jesus. And amen to doing good things for Jesus. But they, those aren't going to patch up the holes in our lives either. Others of us try to patch up the hole in our lives by seeking to be more ethical and more moral in how we live our lives. But here's the thing. Whatever your motivation, whatever your patch of choice, despite all these patch jobs, it's still the same old garment. We remain basically the same people. I mean, the patches work for a while. For a time, we're a little more generous. For a time, we're a little more forgiving. For a time, we're a little more compassionate. For a time, we're a better neighbor for a season until the patches tear and the hole in our tired lives gets exposed again. 
Beloved, Jesus didn't come to patch up our character. Jesus came to transform our character. Jesus came to change our clothes. To change our clothes, to change our mindset, to change our outlook, to change our posture, to change our engagement with each other. We misunderstand and we misrepresent the gospel if all we perceive it to be is Jesus coming to pour a little new wine into our lives. Jesus dropping by to give us a drop of goodness, a shot of courage, a cup of love, a taste of hope. Jesus did not come to add the new wine of the kingdom of God into the wineskins of our old former lives. Another way to say this is following Jesus isn't about adding things to our lives. Bible study, prayer, church membership, charitable service, and so forth. Those are all good things, but following Jesus isn't about adding that stuff to your life. Merely adding things to the old wineskin of an otherwise unchanged and empty life doesn't fill us up and make us feel better. It eventually leads to us becoming more exhausted and overwhelmed until we burn out or, like those old wineskins, inevitably crack and burst from all the pressure. And you have people who aren't here. You may be sitting here today, and that is what your experience is. You're doing all the things. You're coming to church. You go to Bible study. You pray. You give. You're a member. And that's, isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? Isn't that what's how it's supposed to work? And yet, fundamentally, you're no different. In fact, if you're different, you're just more stressed. You're just more burdened. You're just more cranky. Because ultimately, if we're pouring all that stuff, if we're putting all that stuff in ourselves into an unchanged life, doesn't work. What Jesus invites us into is not some religious formula of adding or subtracting things from our life in order to get right with God. And we all say that, we know that, and yet nonetheless, we still live like that's how the formula works. That God has done this great thing for us, and therefore we got to add stuff, or we got to take stuff out in order to get right with God. And we can try. We can try and subtract certain obvious sins from our lives. We can try to add certain obvious good deeds in their place. However, when we do this math, when all the additions and subtractions have been made, again, the sum of who we are remains unchanged. We're still the same old person. Rather than the new creation, we are meant to become in Christ Because the full and abundant life God seeks to give to us is not about the things we add or remove from our lives. Because, and here's why. Because the truth is, on our own, we can't remove all the dead things that weigh us down in life. We can't. And on our own, despite all the moral things we may add to the surface of our lives, we can't change deep down who we are apart from God. And who we are apart from God, and this is all of us, any of us and all of us, who we are apart from God are broken, flawed, inconsistent, self-centered people. And if you have issue with that, then we got to start way, way back. Who we are, all of us, apart from God, are sinners. No one is righteous, not yet one. 
Don't bring out your resume. Don't try to say, well, I've got more in my column than yours. We all share the same trait apart from God. We're broken. We've fallen and we can't get up. What we want to do, we don't do. And what we don't want to do, we do. We're flawed. We're inconsistent. We have lots of good intentions, but our good intentions don't lead to very many actions. And we're self-centered people. Even when we try to be altruistic, we try to make to be altruistic to make ourselves feel better. We try to do good things for other people so we can prove to ourselves and to others that it's not all about me. And we know that because we often catch ourselves and go, well, somebody else has it a lot worse than I do. So I really should just suck it up. And that's true. But fundamentally, what's your motivation for helping somebody else? Is you're helping somebody else out so you can ease your conscience that really it's not all about you? Or are you helping them because you legitimately want to help them? I don't know about you, but I know about me that more often than not, i got to question my motives. Anytime I think I'm going to be the hero, more often than not, I'm only being the hero in my own mind. In my own heart. On our own, we can't remove all the dead things that weigh us down in life. On our own, despite all the moral things we may add to the surface, we can't change deep down who we are apart from God. We need an extreme makeover that only Jesus can provide. The whole garment of our lives needs to be changed. We need to become new wineskins. We must be born again, born from above. We need a new spirit. We need to be transformed in a way only the Holy Spirit can cultivate. Gradually softening and removing our hearts of stone and transplanting them with supple hearts of flesh that mirror the very heart of God. My friends, following Jesus is about not us changing ourselves. Following Jesus is about Christ reshaping us. Again, reshaping how we see God, reshaping how we perceive ourselves, reshaping how we recognize each other, how we think, how we speak, how we act, reshaping and reforming us so that we can receive, so that we can hold and pour out the new wine of the kingdom of God. And what is this new wine? which just can't be merely added to our lives, this wine through which our lives are radically changed. In a word, this new wine is grace. Grace is the new wine. Grace is the new wine that's greater than all of our sin. Grace is the new wine not in the sense that grace is new, that God has changed, that God was in a bad mood and all of a sudden got over it, no, grace is not the new wine in the sense that God has changed, for God has not changed. Grace is the new wine in the sense that in Jesus, we receive and experience the clearest, the richest, the most complete picture of the mercy, love, hospitality, and compassion, the very character and person of God that we've ever had. But that's always been there. That we've been unable to see until God came down in the flesh. Grace is the new wine that cannot be contained, that bursts out of the old wineskins shaped out of guilt and shame. Grace is it. But as Jesus affirms, did you hear it? The new wine of grace can take some getting used to. Because, after all, grace involves change. Being changed by God. And most of us don't like change. Some of us don't want to change. A lot of us believe we can't change. 
And still, the fact is, change is a difficult but inevitable experience of life. Not all change is good. Not all change is necessary. But here's the thing, and there's just no way around it. The gospel is all about change. All about change. If we still believe, and I hope after, I've been here over a decade, if there's somebody here who's still thinking this, please come and see me. If we still believe the Christian life is about simply saying a prayer so that we'll go to heaven when we die, but we never have to have our lives changed here and now, then we've heard and we're sharing the wrong gospel, a false gospel. The gospel, the good news, is that we need to be changed that our perspective on God needs changing, that how we relate to each other desperately needs changing, that this world, all creation, is groaning for change. And the good news is this is what Jesus comes to inaugurate, real, meaningful, deep life change, the eternal transformation of all things, including us. The Christian life is a journey of change, of being changed, or as the Apostle Paul once wrote, moving from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Still, got to come back here, still, the new wine of grace can be hard for many to swallow. The new wine of grace can be hard for many to swallow, even if you come to this table every week. The new wine of grace can be hard to swallow because for people who live and die by the rules, is that you? Are you someone who lives and dies by the rules? Because if you live and die by the rules, man, grace is unsettling. Grace is unsettling because it's easy to become addicted to the false comfort, the false sense of security of regulations and boundaries. Are you a rule follower? Is that what you are? Because it's easy to become addicted to the false sense of security of regulations and boundaries, to the presumed sense of power and superiority that come from judging and condemning others. If you live and die by the rules, grace is unsettling. And for those, and I know there's somebody here, at least one, for those of us who strive to be perfect, any perfectionists in the house? For those of us who strive to be perfect and who who demand otherwise, others likewise meet that standard of perfection? Grace can be unsatisfying. More of an annoyance, more of an excuse than an encouragement. And grace does not mix well with those who refuse to let go of their anger and resentment. We have people here today. There's somebody, at least one, always is, and I'm guessing there's more, who you're living off your anger and your resentment. You wouldn't say it, But push comes to shove. Your motivation, your energy, your animation in life comes from your bitterness, your resentment. You're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. Grace does not mix well with those who don't let go of their anger and resentment. The forgiveness out of which grace is harvested leaves a bitter taste in the mouth of those who continue to nurse grudges, who insistently demand their pound of flesh. And again, I've said it before, I'll repeat it. We live in a world that wants to sell you, that wants to cater to your anger, that wants to cater to your frustration, that wants to cater to your resentment because it sells, because it 
falsely satisfies. It makes you feel alive. But all it really is, is just a reflection of how dead you are. When all we have are the rules and the law, if that's all we've got, when all we have is the rules and the law, all we have is a lot of guilt and shame. And that's why the church has got a bad rap, because the church knows all about the rules, all about the law. We can quote the rules and the law better than we know about Jesus. And so therefore, all we've got to slop around everybody is guilt and shame. We're steeped in it, and we want other people to feel it too. That's not what Jesus came for. When all we have are the rules and the law, all we manifest, surprise, surprise, is a lot of finger pointing. A lot of name calling. When all we have are the rules and the law, when that's all we've got, all we cultivate is criticism and condemnation. There are no room for differences. No. No, we cannot disagree. No, we cannot be. If you're not on my side, you're against me. You're not for me, then you're against me. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for mercy. What? You crossed me? What? You said that? You did that? You're done. You're out. When the rules and the law are all we have, there's no room for differences. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for mercy. But when we have grace in the midst of all the rules, the law, grace in the midst of all the rules and the law, there is more room for us to all breathe a little more freely. There's more room for openness and wonder rather than defensiveness and hostility. We don't have to be afraid. We can be curious. There's more room for forgiveness and reconciliation. Even when we disagree, even when we hurt each other, there is more room for love and mercy. Love and mercy that not are expressed out of fear of protecting ourselves. And again, a lot of our love and mercy comes out of, well, you know what? I want to make sure I get taken care of, so I'm going to love you, so you love me. I'm going to show you mercy, so you show me mercy. That's the minimal standard. That's not what grace is about. Grace is about love and mercy that are not expressed out of protecting ourselves, but out of love and mercy that are born from a selfless and honest compassion for others. Because I'm not worried about love and mercy, because I know I am loved and have been given mercy by God. And therefore, nobody's got nothing on me. When we're used to living only by the rules, when we're used to living only to the letter of the law, there's just no way around it. Grace is definitely an acquired taste. But it's not one that's acquired by us working harder, adding and subtracting things from our lives. Grace is an acquired taste when we die to ourselves and let Jesus completely turn us upside down, inside out, and fill us with new wine. Again, I know I got some people right now who are just, you so like the rules. You so like the law. And I want you to hear this again. Grace does not negate the need for the rules. Grace does not negate the need for the law. Here's the key, one more time. Grace reminds us all the rules, the law, was never intended to become an end unto itself. The rules 
the law were always intended to point us, to lead us into a deeper, fuller, complete relationship with our Creator, our Heavenly Father, and by extension, into a deeper, fuller, complete relationship with ourselves and with each other. Grace doesn't negate the rules or the law. Grace takes us beyond the limits of the rules and the law. Grace takes us into the highest and most beautiful of all rules and laws. The law of unconditional divine love. The summation of the law, according to Jesus. Beloved, by themselves, all the rules and the law can't change us the way we need to be changed. And we're all well-practiced. We're all well-practiced at going through the motions you do it and I do it too, of trying to show others what they need to see in order to label us good. And we can even try to fool ourselves by giving the appearance of change for the better without actually anything changing inside of us. Guilt, shame, punishment, they're still effective tools that may lead to our compliance, our external obedience, but you and I both know that's not the same thing as internalizing God's rules for life. Rules, again, that were created for our mutual benefit, not for our creator. And God knows this. Our creator knows this. Our creator knows that the rules and the law cannot save us. They were never intended to. And that's why giving us the rules, the law, was never the master plan of our creator. That's why God didn't come down in Christ and hand us a list of things to do. But instead, repeatedly invites and beckons us to come and follow me to learn from Jesus, to receive from Jesus, to receive from Jesus the grace that fulfills the law, to learn from Jesus about the grace that enables us to live the full, abundant life that God always intended for humanity. Are you settling for a patchwork religion rather than a relationship with Jesus? I want you to chew on that. Not just today, all week long. Are you settling for a patchwork religion, ripping off parts of the gospel to try to patch up holes? Or are you engaging a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we struggling to receive the new wine of God's grace because we continue to resist being changed? We continue to resist having the old wineskin of our lives exchanged for the new life that Christ offers to us. You can keep coming to this table and sipping wine. And that's great. But sipping wine is not what Jesus came for. Jesus came to change you and I into the very vessels that could be the conduits of the wine that he seeks to give to the world. Jesus offers us a new life, not a patchwork on our old life. Only Jesus can change us for the good. Only Jesus can change all creation for the better. Only Jesus the bridegroom can deliver the wedding, can deliver the marriage that God promises to us all. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehp.org.